Welcome to the Stats Check Podcast with your hosts, Andrew and Joe. Follow us on Facebook at Stats Check Podcast and Twitter at Stats Check Cast. Now to the weekly update where we're probably mostly going to focus on Jurassic World. We'll see if we get to anything else. <laughs> so I wanted to bring this one up because um, I actually saw this movie in two continents. It came out a little earlier in um, France when I was there and I saw it in Paris, subtitled. And I just had a friend actually today ask me if I wanted to see it for a third time. And I had to tell him to hold up because I had to review it first. So I just wanted to go over this with Joe. There's a lot of different themes in this movie. I mean, this is obviously a long series. The latest Jurassic World is the second one in a reboot. Wait, what? Yeah. So essentially, if you think about the series in kind of two segments, it, it, it's tied together. It's supposed to all be the same canon, right? Oh, so. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, when you say reboot, I get triggered. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Ava is is very near and dear, and, and that that hurts. No, it's not. Not anymore. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll get to that. We'll get to that. That's for another episode, Joe. But no, um, this, this is near and dear to me too. I think Jurassic Park was probably the first adult novel that I read on my own back when I was a kid, and it was captivating to me because little kids love dinosaurs. But yes. also just everything about it, the original was a fantastic film. The casting, the script, the soundtrack, the... The CGI, the, I mean, that was one of the well, first Well, I mean, even beyond there. CGI, I mean, they built a lot of the dinosaurs. And I think that's why, you know, a lot of people have remarked that that's why it stands the test of time. Because it's not all clunky computer graphics of whatever era it is, but they built dinosaurs. I mean, that's pretty badass. Just saying that you built a dinosaur, even if it's not dino DNA, that's pretty badass. And the aesthetics, too. I mean, like, the aesthetics of the first film were, were, were so great. I mean, you had the old, you know, the old rich guy in the, you know, the, the pure white clothing, you know, with the amber staff. You know, you had young Jeff Goldblum with a six-pack and full leather. <laughs> you know, you had the lawyer who gets Iconic. eaten. Iconic. Yeah. You had the great white hunter, you know, who goes out, you know, and gets taken out by dinosaurs. I mean, you had the the the, the blonde, the kids, the you know, paleontologist. I mean, all of it was there. Yeah, it's held up over time. And that's why, you know, my first thought here is that they've dragged this out for too long. I haven't seen Jurassic World or the most recent film succeeding it. I did see the two prior and didn't care as much for them. I was older, but they also just didn't recapture the magic. I think you can agree with me on that, right? Yeah, I do agree with you on that. And, you know, I, I won't ever fight that. The the Jurassic Park 2 and 3 just weren't the same. 2, I, I thought was all right. But, and once again, you don't get the magic of the first time. But I think that's sort of the Star Wars effect, right? Where people just compare everything to episode 4 and how it's not episode 4, right? Well, that's a totally different thing, but wasn't episode seven basically just episode four? This was the feeling I came away with. I and, fell off of the Star Wars train a long time ago. I used to be, you know, one of these kids that was deep into the expanded universe. And then I just kind of gave up on the whole thing. And now I feel good about that because of what they've done. And, and I think that's definitely a different episode. You know, we can do a Star Wars right. episode because I have a lot to say about that. But I think that in this case, uh, that my similarity is they were trying to recapture the magic 
of going into a park in the in the previous movie you know the the premise is the park is functional and you know there's a different island the park is functional they made it profitable it worked it's been running for a while and then shit gets real and life finds a way <laughs> but you know it, it's going to complain but he says that more often than any other person i've ever met and i just don't do but, that again. But, but he, but he's usually, but he's usually talking about contraception, right? No, I don't think so. Okay, <laughs> so yeah, the the so the, the just the basic premise of the first one, you know, the the first Jurassic World was the park was up and running. They made a hybrid of a T Rex and a Raptor, and you know that got loose. What? Yeah, yeah, the, the Indominus Rex. So. That got loose. Sharknado? Is yes. this Sharknado? Yeah, yeah, so that got loose, killed a bunch of people, and had to be beaten by the combo of raptors, T-Rex, and like a giant sea dinosaur. So, and, they ha- and, and human. They all had to combo attack it to actually finish this thing off. The, the visuals premise, I'm getting aren't really all that inspiring to me. I'm sorry. It, it, w- it, was kind of, it was kind of good. I mean, I will say, you know, as much as people hate on the guy... Chris Pratt did a really good job acting who in that one. Him? You told me I was the only one on the planet who hates on it. Are, are you? I, I mean, okay, maybe you are. But, you know, he did, he did a good job. Bryce Dallas Howard, who I sort of have a crush on, a redheads, I don't know, can't help it. But, you know, she did a good job acting in that one. And so did the kind of support cast, um, except for the kind of eccentric owner who was kind of just a who just came off as crazy. There's no kind of endearingness about him. But anyways, following that, the premise of this story is is that there was a volcano on that island where the defunct park is, where all the dinosaurs are still roaming around, free, no cages, just being dinosaurs. And hey, the volcano's going to go off. Should we save the dinosaurs? Well, of course, there's other interest here. Some people want to go back for, you know, pieces of this Indominus Rex to kind of clone it again. and. Uh, see where they can go from there. Uh, some people want to go back and, and kind of take the dinosaurs and sell them. So ultimately, Pratt and the the female lead, Bryce Dallas Howard, um, I, I don't know her character's name, but they go back under the premise of saving the dinosaurs and bringing them to a conservation area. Well, it turns out they teamed up with the Dirty Birds and they want to take the dinosaurs and essentially auction them off uh, to the highest bidder but they do that by bringing them all, capturing a bunch of dinosaurs, bringing them all the way to California, and then trying to auction them off. And at the same time, they're trying to clone the Indominus Rex with a raptor, so kind of giving it more raptor blood than T-Rex blood, and training it to kill people as a, like, essentially... Because of course they would. Yeah, a weapon, uh, a weapon, exactly. You know, which is triggered by sound and lasers and stuff like that. So... Obviously, shit goes wrong. In these other film franchises, don't they have other films that they can look at? You know, I'm imagining they don't have any Jurassic Park films, but can't they watch, like, any other movies in their fictional universe to realize that this is a bad idea? Yeah, yeah. I love it when they'll cite that inside of the world and say, hey, haven't you seen this movie? (laughs) But in this one, it seems like they haven't, and they haven't thought about the past. They haven't thought about anything that happened or any of the previous problems with this. You know, it's within this universe that a dinosaur went to San Diego and shit got real. Right. 
So, yeah. Uh, this is not an open-air auction they're planning. This is some underground. This is an underground. They have, like, they have, like, all the cliches in there. They got, like, the Thai general, the Russian, like, I don't know, really? so, mafia so, guy. So, like, the Liam Neeson dinosaur is going to come into this and save his daughter? I was expecting it at any point. And, but I think Chris Pratt was supposed to be Liam Neeson. That's an offensive statement. <laughs> I know. I, I didn't want to say it. The words didn't want to come out of my mouth, but I did. But the most endearing character was actually the raptor that Chris Pratt trained, who ends up pretty much saving everybody's ass, brawling with like the souped-up raptor and essentially killing it at the end, which is, which is pretty badass. And, of course, the T-Rex eats the villain in the end. But one other thing is that, and it is one line, and I, during both showings, at the end of the movie, was like, how the F did it not... You, you can curse. You've been cursing. Oh, we're, on a po- we're on a podcast. How the fuck did nobody bring this up or mention it after one line? One of the characters, a young girl, is actually a clone of her mother who died in a car accident. Oh, sorry, spoilers if anybody... <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tag this whole thing up as having spoilers. Yeah. So, 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 so there's, human cl- there's human cloning. There's dinosaur cloning. Wait, so this is in the United States of America? Yes. This what happened year in is California. I mean, you can assume that it's been some years, but I think it's supposed to be contemporaneous to modern times. Well... Last I checked, human cloning was still illegal in the United States. Yeah, they they were clearly committing a crime here, and they insinuated. Oh, this wasn't in daylight. This was no. This is underground. Just... This is under okay. this guy's mansion, and, and you know this this old guy who. Oh, so the guy financing this operation? Yeah, so there's clones his wife. Oh, clones his clones his daughter because his daughter died. Oh, okay. And, and, and he has a young young you know granddaughter. He calls her, but really she's just a clone of his daughter who died. And he's constantly making comments like, you look just like your mother, you're the spitting image, blah, blah, blah. And the, the whole plot is this guy had good intentions. The older guy had you know, good intentions, wanted to save the dinosaurs. But he named a trustee who was a dirty bird who wanted to make money and you know, sell the dinosaurs. So he was the one who hired all these mercenaries, got them to bring it back, coordinated the underground sale, coordinated the making this like souped up raptor and, and all that. But as part of it, he ignores his scientists. His scientists say, you know, this, this you know, dinosaur's a prototype. It's not trained. It's not ready. But yet he puts it on the auction block and tries to sell it because it can make him a couple million dollars. That's like a couple million dollars, dude. That's nothing. That's, really? that's like, I mean, that's like, you can make that in the stock market in a day. You know, it's like, I think the final bid was like 20 million. I mean, honestly, in the, the world I deal with and see every day, that's not that much money. And how much it's going to take to transport, house, and feed it, breed it, whatever. It doesn't seem very practical. Right, right. The guy who bought it was, was from Russia. So you're going to have to smuggle a raptor back to Russia from California? That's, I don't know how many parts of Russia have the climate to support free-range dinosaurs. Yeah, that, that's, you know, you'd have to assume I mean, they made some modification it, to it to tolerate Yeah, I mean, in the... In the original film and book, I believe, they did explain that they were endothermic, and so it wouldn't just freeze to death like your average lizard would. Nevertheless, I can't imagine it's going to be too happy or have the, the anything that it would need to free range. Right. And the 
kind of print the setup at the end is that you know some of these dinosaurs were actually successfully auctioned off you know obviously the the auction is kind of stopped halfway and mm. and you know the the raptor you know ultimately the really dangerous raptor that it had gotten out would have caused you know big trouble uh, is killed but half the dinosaurs get away uh dr Wu, who's the the um the asian scientist from the first movie who came back during jurassic world uh the first one and came back during this one as well he gets away so this guy who's got the dino genetics knowledge is still out there and the dinosaurs at the end are set loose in california so there's a raptor running wild in california a t-rex all these herbivores there's petrodactyls there's all this shit you, oh you would, you would have thought the cloning guy would have figured out after so many movies that he doesn't want to touch this anymore right that it's it's too it's too hot it's you know, <laughs> it's too it's too hot fire so also the giant sea creature that that you know eats entire people gets away and, and kind of swallows a surfer at the end in one of the final cuts and of course, Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard, you know, have the clone girl with them at the end. So, so they've got their own kind of clone issues. But it's sort of set up for a third movie where you have dinosaurs all over the world. And what, he's going to be like Dinosaur Dundee and go round them up? At that point, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be probably something in a different part of the world that's not on an island. But I think the one major theme is that and we see it through all these movies, but really in these last two, it's just, you know, they they create these dinosaurs and they have no care for them. They really just don't know how to operate them. They don't know how to deal with them. They they don't know what they're doing. There's very little testing, um, you know, It's and, and they end up, in a lot of cases, neglecting them. It's kind of sad that, you know, you'd bring something into the world and you wouldn't have any ability to to deal with it or any capability of... Uh, thinking, hey, it has these needs, or we have to take these precautions, or, or what, or whatnot. It just seems like they're haphazardly dealing with these kind of dinosaurs in a lot of the movies. Yeah. So the way you're describing it actually sounds like it's getting worse over time. I remember in the original film, they go through all the trouble of showcasing all the fail safes, all of the carefully plotted out things that they've done to build this park, and display it as safe to you know that pre-review group that's going through right and you know the result being that jeff goldblum is right complex technical systems have flaws in them that you cannot foresee and you know only when you run it do you understand what kind of situations are going to emerge out of the intersection of all those factors but from what you're describing to me, you know, I'm sitting here kind of dumbfounded listening to you tell me about this movie because it sounds like a two and a half ring circus. It sounds like, you know, the inmates are running the asylum here. Yeah. And, and I will say Jeff Goldblum, credit to Jeff Goldblum, gets it right again because he's actually lecturing the fuck out of everybody because the, the one you know opening premise is there's this big pitch to the Senate, the U.S. Senate, on whether or not to go go in and save the dinosaurs. Now, putting aside the fact that the islands always were part of Costa Rican sovereign territory, mm-hmm. and you know that would technically be interference with Costa Rican sovereign territory, but you know, assuming America World this isn't Police, new. yeah, this isn't new for us. Yeah, assuming America World Police, 
you know, he, Jeff Goldblum goes, you know, we, we need to let him die. We need to let what, you know, is going to happen naturally with the volcano happen. We've unleashed genetic power. We don't know how to control it. And we're going to use it irresponsibly. And he's correct. Once again, I, I don't know how I feel about using things like this to, you know, get up on a platform and take a heavy handed swipe at it either. Mm-hmm. These are complicated questions, and I don't know that a Hollywood film is the greatest place to have that debate. I mean, yes, it's great to put the idea into people's minds, but I don't know that listening to a guy who has made a large part of his career off of playing the same character, saying the same things over and over again, is who you want to point to as a spiritual and moral guide. <laughs> that, that, that's giving much more credit than I want to give there. I'm not making a broader cultural statement off of that. But isn't that how it's being set up? I mean, I even saw the trailer. You know, here he is in this scene. You know, the camera's focusing in on him. He's in front of Congress. And he's telling them things in a way, of course, that only he can to make it sound both insightful and a little creepy at the same time. You know, he's being cast as this scientific cleric. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he came out of the first movie looking clever and more subtle than just about everyone else there because he was able to correctly predict what really anyone with a notion of systems engineering would have understood. Mm. But I, I think it's pushing it too far. I mean, I think there's such a thing as too much is trepidation around these kind of abilities that we as a civilization are developing and are already exercising in ways that people aren't paying attention to or in ways that people aren't mostly aware of. So, so are you saying, Joe, are you saying that people are being too careful? You're saying that, that being too watchful and too reticent and too conservative in terms of, experimentation, you know, in terms of willingness to try different things that might have catastrophic results is, is a, kind of a trend out there. And we should be careful. Well, of... I, I think that there would be a right way if we're going to stick to the universe of this movie, there would be a right way to clone a dinosaur and to expose it to people so that they could learn about it. There's a way that's not going to be catastrophic, right? Right. You can just imagine that in your head. There's a, there has to be a safe way to do this. Maybe things could go wrong with it. You know, the power could fail. Locks could fail. You know, things that actually did end up happening in the first film. But the idea of building, you know, a whole concentrated island full of these things, that seems like it's flirting with disaster a little bit more. Right. And I think that's part of the... The, the general theme that, you know, one thing can go wrong or a series of things can go wrong and that can lead to catastrophic failure. And, and you know, that can happen even with well-planned events or well-planned things. I mean, if, for example, I mean, we go to the Titanic, right? I mean, that was supposed to be planned to be unsinkable. I'm not saying that Jurassic Park is a Titanic, but, I mean, they claim to be. Is, yeah, I mean, isn't it really a complex safety mechanism that you know, if you go through the logical chains should work, but it's impossible to 
test it on all the different kinds of scenarios that you could actually face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's right. And that, but that applies to a lot of different systems. And what I thought I heard you saying, Joe, was that we have to be careful because, you know, if you, you take that out, then you're never going to do anything, right? I mean, I mean, if, you, if you're worried about, you know, a catastrophic failure or every, you know, possible it's, sequence of events, you're eventually going to get to, okay, well, if we, you know, play with the, the a collider, we might, you know, have a black hole. Well, okay, yes, but <laughs> probably. I, I actually had to explain to someone the other week why we weren't in particular danger regarding that. But it's, it's not just what you're saying. It, it's not that we would paint ourselves into a corner and not want to move from that. It's that we're already doing things, even without trying to stretch, even without trying to develop things that we think are new or innovative. We're already not in a static position relative to the ecosystem, relative to the human genome or the genomes of other species around us. We're already doing things in a slow gradual, but also really unperceived because we're not looking kind of way. And so just saying that, you know, oh, this is too big. This is too scary. We shouldn't, you know, experiment with cloning because so many big things could go wrong. Well, big things could still go wrong over a longer timeline. Just because you can't fit it into a 90 minute movie doesn't mean that we're not in the middle of a disaster film. Right, right. I guess, yeah, no, but that's not going to be able to be captured, like you said, right there, Joe. Boom. You know, a timeline of a disaster that's occurred over 200 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, Mm 10,000 years is is not something that's going into a film. I mean, unless it's going to be, you know, the cutscene at the Alien show, but, (laughs) you know, with with their hive mind. It's, you know, not going to be something that you're going to be able to portray. But, I mean, it's a salient point. I mean, obviously, it's something that we need to be concerned about as well. I mean, there's, like you said, there's lots of things we're doing right now, actively, passively, uh, indirectly even, that, you know, are not being monitored, that might have potentially catastrophic effects, that, you know, cumulative effects. I mean, a lot of people think easy one, the environment. But... You know, you've got a lot of other things in terms of influence of species, but, in terms of... Yeah, and that's, that's what this film is, right? It's an invasive species or set of species that are created somewhere, let loose somewhere. And, you know, the, the common saying is you can't put the genie back into the bottle. No. And that's, you know, that's, that's also true for, you know, a lot of things that, that are going on right now. You know, once it's out there and, and you've done it, it's, it's hard to put a seal on it. Yeah. And that's why I liked what you said at the beginning of, I guess, our analysis portion of this is that it was unfortunate. You, you, you found it disappointing that they weren't taking care of what they had done. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's actually I, you know, a word that I think is very appropriate because I've been trying to, for a while now, think about that in terms of a different kind of responsibility for what people's actions are Hmm. you know you let this loose and it spreads you know whether it's dinosaurs or you know some other or feral cats i mean you want to go there yeah Yeah, i I mean we're in florida so we actually get uh you know people bring in 
all sorts of animals. Native species. Burmese pythons. Boom. Yeah. And the Everglades gets infested with them because people just dump them out there because they can't take care of them anymore. The snake gets too big. The lizard's too ugly. You can't afford to feed it anymore because your real estate investment tanked. And sometimes you, you know, sometimes you go, oh, well, you know, I like the other one. I, when I was a kid, I used to actually prefer the, the appearance and, you know, catching the Cuban anoles instead of the, you know, Florida American anoles. You know, the, the Cuban anoles were brown, but they could shift colors. They detached their tails easier. They were kind of bigger. They had those crests that were more prominent. You know, right. the, the, the American anoles, they're the green. They're, they're small. They're slender. And they're, they're kind of weird. But, you know, just because it, it, it looks different or, you know, you, you prefer it or, hey, you know, this is the one that looks better, whether plant or animal, you can't detect the effect of adding in a different species to an environment. I mean, that could change so much over the long term. Yeah. And you don't know really where it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. You know, if one person throws a python out into the Everglades, it's probably not going to cause a big systemic effect. However, well, when 6,000 of them were released, you know, at some point in history, uh, you know, that was a big deal. I mean, same thing with, and and that don't know where the point is that it becomes a big deal where it starts to, you know, gain momentum instead of losing it once it's, you know, let off the leash. Right. And that can go both ways. I mean, there's, there's a possibility to restore, right? So, I mean, one of the big things when I was at Ice and Fire Con, mini shout out there, you know, we had the, the people there um, representing, they had wolves and they were like kind of wolf ambassadors. Right. You were, you were telling me it wasn't the bird people this time. Yeah. No, it was not the bird people. No, no raven. There was only wolves and they're really cool. But um, one big thing is, you know, the reintroduction into Yellowstone, right? And mm-hmm. how that's literally changed everything because it's changed grazing patterns for cattle, which has actually changed uh, rivers and how they flow because they end up changing where the grass is and, and what's coming down to eat the plants, which modify the flow of the rivers. I mean, it, it, it has a huge effect, you know, and this is the introduction of, you know, a significant number of wolves, but there's no saying where the tipping point is. You know, same with bison. You know, they, they have an effect on the step in, in terms of, you know, flattening it out, in terms of, you know, keeping the, the soil kind of mixed up. I mean, I know that mammoths had the same effect, you know, in, in ancient times. You know, but those Speaking are all hunted extinction. Right, exactly, which, which brings us back around. It's like people think, you know, if you clone the mammoth, okay, well, do you have a duty to put it back in its natural environment so it, you know, kind of restores the, well, the earth? Well, let's be fair. Its natural environment doesn't exist anymore. I think it, it does exist in a certain band, right? I mean, if you go north enough in Siberia, I think they they still oh, okay. would be I at mean, home, right? I, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna try that again in a very radically specific way. The last mammoth that died lived in a world that we cannot reproduce anywhere on the planet Earth that we have now. A reintroduction yes. of it would be just as well as reintroducing an exotic species that doesn't fit in because it doesn't have a place anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where something has a place or not, I think is hard to tell also. I, I don't like... Well, well that, would, that would be this, but that would be the same with the dinosaurs. I mean, the same with the dinosaurs. I mean, they, yes. you know, the, the environment they dealt with is completely different than the environment 
say. But that doesn't mean that they can't be accommodated. It just means that we can't assume that we know where they're going to go and fit in. I get what you're saying. So even though I'm, I'm pigeonholing them to Siberia, the mammoth might really want to come down to Miami for one of those fire mojitos. <laughs> it's a prime 112 with LeBron. Oh, wait, no, he's in, he's in Cleveland. Oh, wait, no, he's in LA. Yeah. That's... <laughs> no, I mean, it's, I think there are a lot of artificial divides conceptually that are put in that make it actually harder for us to see some of these patterns. You know, going back to the python, if you just keep them as pets, it's still, you know, you might think, okay, it's not having an effect on things that are out in the quote-unquote wilderness far west of you in Miami, but it still changes certain factors around. You have to build it a habitat inside, try to keep it isolated, try to keep it, I guess, satisfied such that it would survive. And that whole process has secondary effects around it. And maybe, you know, thinking of a snake or two here or there doesn't change a lot. But if we think about animals that have been domesticated in far larger numbers, then I think those secondary effects, you mentioned, you know, feral cats. Well, the the cat in most human interactions in the United States these days is really just a luxury item. It's treated as a luxury item as part of that. So, so cat, cat owners are going to be really I, on tilt right now. I grew up with cats. I love cats. I Your mother owns a cat, cat, yes. No, not anymore. The not building, anymore. Owned it. Owned, owned formally. Yeah, the Sorry. building Actually. she's in doesn't allow it anymore. Right. And I mean, that's why I especially call it a luxury item because you have to have the territory to devote to it. You know, they get along well enough indoors, but there has to still be enough square footage and, and the right environment. Right. I mean, you know, I've seen the the shows where there, you know, there's no place for the cat to kind of get up and be private and be yeah. by itself. And it has a lot of, you know, there's behavioral issues interacting there, but yeah, you're right. I mean, you're saying you're modifying your habitat and here's another thing, Joe, which goes with the Python, but also with the cat, there's sort of a kind of synergistic effect where if, as soon as you have a cat and someone sees that cat, they want to get a cat too. And this plays back into TV movies. You know, as soon as 101 Dalmatians came out, everybody mm. wanted a Dalmatian. The, you know, any movie, let's say with a husky, they would, they'd all want a husky or, you know, Game of Thrones, they'd want like a wolf dog. You know, <laughs> the American Alsatian, you know, is the, the official name of that dog. You know, but then they realize, shit, it's really hard to take care of. We can't do this and end up letting it go. You know, and yeah, so that shifts the population geographically, even if you're not trying to breed extra ones, you're still moving them around the map. Right. And you're modifying behavior. You having a, a Burmese python might cause somebody else to get a Burmese python and you might be responsible somebody else to lose their cat. Exactly. So there you go. I mean, once again, you know, you're creating all these other, I mean, indirectly or directly, these are effects of bringing animals outside of their natural habitat. And it's, it's strange because there's that trope in sort of pop culture child rearing where the non-human pet is the testing ground for the child's level of responsibility so it can learn to take care of itself. That it's an animal sacrifice. You know, how many fish have died 
because the parents want to see if the kid will remember to feed the fish every day or as often as they need it, whatever that is. And, 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 that's, and that's a quite perverse you know, thought. I mean, you'd never do that with a child. I mean, obviously it's different. You have a, you know, in terms of your personal You would never want to, I agree, right. that it happens. I would say it happens. I, I don't want to say that I know anyone that's had like a tester child and then it's, you know, see how they like it or not. But there are plenty of children on this planet that don't get the caretaking that they need. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's, that's tragic just as the failure to take care of, you know, any other entity I think is tragic. They may not be able to communicate with words and that that's our advantage as supreme higher apes here, but well, you know, they, well, but I mean, they, they still on some level, whether it's even, you know, part of the reptilian system or whether they're mammalian, you know, they still have certain impulses and emotions and, I wouldn't want to underrate the social life of lots of creatures. I just think that we're not very attuned to it. I I, know that I'm trying not to, I'm trying to do the opposite, Joe. I'm trying to say that the fact that these things are neglected, you might say, oh, it's just a fish, but even a fish, you know, we don't, we don't have an understanding of what that internal life is really. We can theorize about it, but we don't understand it. And I think the other pitfall is that you just look at it you know, it's a fish, it's on your plate, you're just eating a fish, it's the unit, but there, you know, the population in an area, the species, the interconnectedness of that fish to other fish, to people, to water, is something that I think we've just historically been biased against recognizing well to our detriment, to the detriment of all. Right. The, you're saying the, the interconnectedness of everything as part of a system, a whole, a whole system. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I mean, every so you're, often. You're getting, you're getting back to your academics here, Joe. I am, but I mean, I'm back in the classroom. Even without that, you know, I just every so often will try to do a little visual, visualization in my head. If I look at an object, well, where, you know, how did it get to me? What are the parts that went into it? Where are those things relative to where I am? If I'm eating a fish for dinner, well, at some point, it was delivered to a store that's a distribution center through a truck, through some kind of central logistical hub, you know, all the way back to a boat. It was plucked out of an ocean somewhere, presumably. Or a farm. Right. Well, I'm, I'm trying to paint this as far away from me as possible for the example. Right. You know, this fish could have been anywhere within, you know, tens of thousands of square kilometers of ocean surface area that it was snatched out of. And that could have been, you know, on the other side of the planet from me for all I know. And yeah, I can figure out all these things if I put my mind to it. But there's nothing about the fish in front of me on the plate that would make me think of that unless I'm actively trying to force that image. Or unless there, it's a marketing thing or a right part of it. I mean, for right, right now, for example, I just went to the grocery store between work and making dinner and, uh, you know, getting on this cast. And, you know, I, I consumed one and a half birds. But, you know, in addition, I, bu- I bought tuna. You know, one of the big things on a lot of these, these tuna cans now is that they're line caught. They're, you know, 
appears in the Pacific, from the wild, from a particular region, having lower mercury, you know, of a certain size. So you're getting into this story of like, okay, this is a fish of a certain size of a, in a certain place, you know, in a, with a certain diet. I mean, same thing with cattle. I, I have in, you know, went to fresh market, got some milk. It's, you know, grass milk. So, you know, it's from a certain area, from a certain farm, fed a certain diet. I mean, this is something if you go out, you, you're just seeing commonly now. So I think that maybe, you know, I, I want to be almost like a smidge hopeful that we start thinking about things in terms of their context a little bit more. I, I hope you're right. I think, and I don't know how much further we want to push this, but I think there's the opposite problem that we face in a lot of other areas, which is a data overload. In theory, if you're talking about a farmed fish, you could GPS tag it and you could, you know, put on the box that you buy it out of a QR code that would show you on your phone the entire track of that fish for its entire life cycle and death cycle as it's delivered to you as a food product. And would that actually tell you anything meaningful about it? No, it wouldn't. There's lots well, of it, it is, that's it is. out there. It is funny you say that, Joe, because I've actually heard, um, you know, and this is secondhand knowledge, but I've heard that in California, I'm sorry, not California, Colorado, with certain batches of, I think they started doing it when they were doing medical marijuana, but, you know, there, there's this, these um, QR codes that you can scan that'll trace your bud all the way back to the source, the farm, where it came from, <laughs> you know, and get all that information you just described. And people actually do it, you know, and it's something that people care about to make sure that they're getting a certain product, you know, of particular details. Right. And I wonder how much of, you know, in that area that that is a luxury consideration and not something, you know, that's a little more necessary. You know, you mentioned before, like the mercury content of the fish you're eating. That is a vital piece of information. Yes. A particular strain of marijuana that you're smoking recreationally in Colorado because it's legal there to do that is probably not as vital. You're offending a lot of people out there who are really specific on their bud, bro. Are you... Are, are you serious? That that would be offensive. That that that's a luxury consideration. I mean, that's, yeah, there's a luxury consideration, but there might be a qualitative difference. I mean, in I know, the same I'm not way denying that, it. There is, yeah. but beggars can't be choosers in some of these areas. Right? Oh no, no. And, and I guess about, that's the the principle of a luxury item is that you're not begging. It's not a necessity. Right? Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Versus in some areas, if you're doing subsistence fishing, you don't have the option to go a field away from a mercury concentration in a local population. You just have to absorb that and feed it to your kids and watch your local human population slowly descend into this self-destructive spiral. Right. Well, well, it's like, you know, I mean, I guess, do we market for, do we know, do we market differently for different areas i mean if you know if you're it's I think a, absolutely a we do i mean yeah. it is is it hey this is hot fire it has no mercury or low mercury you know in this in this you know third world scenario versus okay we're, we're first world so now we're talking about what color the fish is and how happy it was on the day it was slaughtered i mean i, I don't know i mean is that is that how we're doing here is that is that your ideal i'm not saying it's ideal but i'm saying that it's probably important from a certain reckoning to start 
from the broadest net you can cast, heaven forbid, talking about fishing, and narrow it down when we can. But for the amount of people that are still not eating well on this planet, I think that it's important that we do try to cover the basics. And if that's if that's controversial, I no, I, I think that that you're going to get pretty much broad consensus there. I guess the issue, and that's for another another episode, gets in a duty to do that, and who's responsible for that, and how that's applied, right. and, 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 well, and that's, that's that's a whole separate conversation. It, it may be, but I wanna I wanna say one thing here to finish off my part for that. Going back to to dinosaur cloning, that who is responsible? I want to propose that a way we can trace that responsibility is through that, that causal chain. You know, if you built the lab that cloned these dinosaurs, you ought to be answerable to people that are asking why there are dinosaurs climbing into their backyard. But Joe, I think that's, I, I, I agree with you. Okay? Not solely I, answerable, but you, you're okay, part so, of it. So, so I'm going to tell you, you know, and, and put on my, my lawyer hat here, that, you know, obviously causal chain makes a lot of sense, but nowadays causal chain is much, much more difficult to yes. trace. And as you get complex systems, think about something like a rocket. You know, there is, there's so much work that goes into that by so many people yep. and very, very near and dear to central Florida here, guys. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, there was, there was one that crashed in Mars because some university students, what in Canada forgot to uh, switch from um, centimeters to inches. You know, I mean, there, there's, there's so many people, but they, of course they weren't the only people that worked on it. They weren't right. the only people who checked it. They weren't the only people who ran the numbers, yeah. you know, does it really go back to, to them? I mean, it's hard to say. Well, I, again, I, I think, I think you're talking about cloning a dinosaur, dude. Yeah, I but mean, I think you're, talking you're, about... you're, you're a lawyer. And so I'm going to say that I'm assuming that you're focusing in on a certain punitive approach to this, that if someone's responsible, then if it goes wrong, therefore something has to be extracted from that person to compensate for it. And that's not exactly what I'm saying here. Well, if you don't have, I mean, my, and, and this may get <laughs> my worldview here, but I mean, there has to be punitive measures. I mean, I think that any, in any successful system, you know, without some sort of cause and effect, you know, you, you're not going to see that. I mean, that you're going to call it punitive. I'd want to call it Corrective? Com- I don't know. You can call it compulsory rehabilitative, not to the person, but to the situation that was created. You know, if you release the dinosaur, you should contribute some assistance to trying to round up the dinosaur. But yeah. how is that? Okay. But, but the expert on the dinosaur you just cloned. Yeah, but but that's once again that's got to be punitive. I mean, because once again, the the, the only you know, unless you're talking about enslaving the person and making them an indentured servant to go wrangle the dinosaur, which, which is a whole different set of issues there. I think you're but, exaggerating. Plenty of people are subject to civil sanction and we don't think of them that way, or we're trying not to. Florida's not that good on that right now. But it's Before, still- Florida basically disenfranchises anybody who passes a certain threshold of civil sanction and doesn't let them back in. Yes, that, that's, that's very true. that's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm not trying to build a pit trap that you can't get out of if you screwed up somewhere in your job. I'm saying that your job 
and those of your employers, your supervisors, you know, the people higher up on the proverbial food chain should be instigated to take corrective measures when something that they're responsible for has gone off the rails. And all I'm saying is historically and practically that's worked through some sort of either civil or criminal right action. But I think you know, or, or perhaps an injunctive measure if it's something that is that is not that does not involve, you know, compulsory labor. Yeah, but part of the problem there I think is that just being to pay it off and leave it alone is done all too often. But and it the, doesn't address the problems, you know. It's not supposed to be that way, though. I mean, you know, when, when, you're, when you're supposed to be oral, ordered to, you know, remediate the oil spill just because you didn't do it doesn't mean that that couldn't be something that is part of the order or that wasn't. I mean, I, and, and, you know, I didn't follow the, the, the whole BP issue as, as closely as perhaps I should. But, you know, there were costs and amounts that were paid for remediation that were supposed to go towards remediation. Now, the issue is, did that really happen? Did that happen to an acceptable degree? Was there a certain amount of kind of culpability there that just got let off the hook because of the particular era it happened in, the particular jurisdiction, the connections? I can't say that one way or another, but well, that's, 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 that's what didn't happen. I, w- I watched some of these hearings and I actually attended a few conference sessions the year after it happened where this was discussed, I mean, what didn't happen and what hasn't ever happened is that the entire logistical infrastructure that made that kind of accident possible has never been called into question by a major public body. You know, right. the so, petroleum so industry continues to operate. Right. So you're, so you, what you were saying right now is that you would, you know, BP, right? So we're, we're, and I think this is a very practical example, even going to, to dinosaurs. We'll get back there. But, mm-hmm. you know, you're saying that it's not enough to say, to say, hey, BP, you are the ones who caused this causal chain. You do this. You're saying that everybody who is in this industry, Shell, you know, all the, you know, well, because the, 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 Saudi, you- the Saudi Arabian, the Saudi Arabian national oil production company. Everybody I in mean, the industry you, is look, held to task for Let's back this. this up. I don't want to get assassinated, so can we just talk about the dinosaur production industry instead? <laughs> sure. I don't yeah. want big oil to kill me. <laughs> right. Okay. Fine. So dinosaurs, right? Oh, I mean, let, let's see. You, you go to InGen. You say, you know, you started this mess. You cloned the first dinosaur. Yes, there are you know, copycats that have filled out the industry that are built. And that was, and that was what the premise of the, 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 this movie actually dealt with that. I mean, sorry, I didn't bring that up because I didn't want to get into legal minutia. But, you know, there's a, there's a segment how the company that, you know, Engine was bankrupted. That was actually part of the second and third movies mm-hmm. plot is that Engine was bankrupted. But then this new company that opened up the successful park, which made a bunch of money, was also bankrupted because of all the damages and all the suits that they had to settle and deal with and the, you know, costs of cleaning that up. And by the end, they had nothing left to give. Now, where are you going to go if you've bankrupted a company? I mean, if they have no more money left, you've taken it out of everybody personally, you know, who's linked to that. I mean, you take it out of all the executive bank accounts you know you've taken it from every employee on the roster who touched this equity aside where do you go joe was the problem solved no no it wasn't well you can't ignore it okay now you start so the lesson that has to be learned in the in the short term yeah it's, it's unfortunately it's a public problem and it has to be solved by public measures in the long term 
if that public authority, you know, whether it's the government of Costa Rica, you know, that is overseeing the island or it's the government of the United States, which is throwing its weight around in Central America, whoever, you know, wherever the buck stops, and I'm not trying to stop it anywhere, you know, the higher it goes, as far as I'm concerned, the better. At some point, it would be best if that public authority had a mechanism built in where it could actually learn from its mistakes and restructure itself to avoid having to foot the bill, tank the damage for that kind of adventurous enterprise in the future. And that takes a massive public policy legislative construction. Yeah, no, I, I, I framed like, this, I framed this as a constitutional down. change. Yeah, that, that is a top-down change, probably more than even the Constitution, just in terms of how you conceptualize structuring organizations and entities. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, a, that is a, a entirely different way than we operate, right? It is, but I'm saying that if we did something like that, you know, once bitten, twice shy. The, the first time dinosaurs break out, it's like, oh, man, this is, this is a problem. We screwed this up. You know, we'll rehabilitate it now. We'll remediate the area and try to undo the cascading secondary damage effects. But we'll try not to let someone do exactly the same thing over again. Hmm. You know, it wasn't the first dinosaur outbreak. It wasn't the first oil spill. It wasn't the first any of this, any of these examples that we've given. And there's, and there's only so much you can do to keep life from finding a way, Joe. Well, but that's the thing. We are part of life, too. If it finds a way, we have to follow that way, too. We have to adapt with the things that are adapting around us, outside of us, away from us. But you as know, we fa- can't, but we can't as, cage it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But I think we need to understand our own fallibility. You know, we're not, we're not infallible. We're not going to not make mistakes. We're going right. to repeatedly make mistakes because we have a lot of issues in our logic, our reasoning, our groupthink. I mean, we can all go into the, yeah. that. But here's, here's a common sense suggestion. If the original Jurassic Park failed say, you know, the next time it's tried, you can only have half as many dinosaurs at most. Yeah, yeah, sure. Is that what happened here? Doesn't sound no. like it. No, they had, they had way more, way more dangerous. Yeah, now, and there was... that makes a great film. I mean, I saw the trailers, you know, all these dinosaurs running all over the place. This yeah, but... The first one had Chris Pratt on a motorcycle running with raptors through the jungle. I mean, that was yeah, pretty I mean, it, it's got to feel badass. But yeah, you know it's going to go wrong at some point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, there, because there been no, there's been no progress. There's been no precautions. You know, and, that's, and that's part of the premise of a good movie. And part of the reason why I still say, hey, I enjoyed it. The dinosaurs look sexy. But I agree with you on all these deeper issues, Joe. You don't know how good that makes me feel to hear. <laughs> I'm here to agree with you when we're not talking about anime. So I think we're going to wrap up this, this uh, weekly update. Yeah, um, wow, thanks. this ran way longer than I thought. Yeah, we, we, said, we said 30 minutes, but <laughs> to get this guy started, and I've been on for three hours with him. So uh, at that, really enjoyed the movie from a visual standpoint. Really glad we got to discuss these topics. This will not be the last time we hit on a lot of this stuff. I'm very sure it's going to come back up, but I'm glad we uh, got to discuss it all. And I'm glad I uh, didn't have to watch it to get to this point. (laughs) 
and direct all your assassinations to Joe and uh, not myself. So again, again come at me. <laughs> on that note, thank you everyone. We'll see you on our next weekly update.